The material shared within this podcast is based on the personal experiences and learnings of the presenter. Coloplast has paid the presenter for sharing this information. Nothing within this podcast is intended to be used as medical advice and or used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Coloplast Professional Bowel and Bladder Matters Podcast, where we explore various important topics related to ostomies and continence. I am your host, Amy Daniels McClure. I'm a registered nurse with a doctorate in nursing focused on rehabilitation and a clinical consultant with Coloplast. Today we welcome Dr. Anita Socolo, Assistant Professor of Clinical Pediatrics at the Keck School of Medicine, University of California. Clinically, Dr. Socolo currently serves as a medical director of the Motility Disorders Program and program director of Neurogastroenterology and Motility Fellowship Training Program at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. As a leader and mentor in the GI motility clinical space, Dr. Socolo teaches with a passion not only for kids that she treats, but a deep passion to educate and support clinicians around the country to help all kids with neurogenic bowel dysfunction reach better clinical outcomes and achieve better quality of life. It's an honor to get to talk with Dr. Anita Socolo today. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Socolo. Thank you for having me, Amy. We're really excited to start this series on bowel dysfunction with you. You have so much to share and teach. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. So thank you for taking the time to be here. First of all, I'd like for you to tell the audience a little bit of a background on your clinical expertise as far as what it means to be a GI motility specialist. Um, if you can describe for us what that means and the journey that you've been on to get there. So my journey started a really long time ago. It actually started when I was an undergrad and I was um, fortunate enough to get a research position um, with the late, amazing Dr. Paul Hyman. And at the time, I didn't know that I even wanted to pursue GI, let alone motility. But um, with his guidance, his mentorship, I started my path into motility So I completed an undergraduate at UC Irvine and did my medical school there and then did a PEDS residency at Harbor UCLA and a GI fellowship at UCLA. So a long way (laughs) back, but along the way, I just had this deep interest really in motility and neurogastrointestinal diseases. And I continued to train with some of the best motilists throughout my training across the country. And then I accepted a position and started a motility program at Valley Children's Hospital in the Central Valley in California. And then I became really a champion for children with neurogenic bowel and motility disorders there. And then recently I accepted a position where I currently am at Children's Hospital Los Angeles as the medical director of the motility program and the fellowship uh, director for the advanced motility program here. So as a motilist, I take care of a wide range of children, as simple as chronic refractory constipation and difficulty defecating to the more complex, as we mentioned, neurogenic bowel diseases and anorectal malformation. So our practice is broad, and really the the expertise that we have is in the type of testing we can offer and the diagnostic um, tools that we have to be able to distinguish children that have either neurologic or muscular diseases and um, be able to give them uh, new and novice kind of treatment options, as well as traditional ones to help with their um, bowel dysfunction. And I know um, that's a lot, Dr. Socolo. So um, we are so lucky (laughs) to be talking to you. So thank you again. There's a lot that you have learned and that you, I know it's a passion of yours to get to share all that knowledge too. So I hear you say time and time again that you want 
um, to teach other physicians. So um, those those that are listening, I know you're going to be excited to get to reach them as well. And I know that you're continuing your neurogenic bowel passion at CHLA because I've seen it. So thank you for that as well. So when you're looking at bowel dysfunction, I think that term is used pretty broadly across um, healthcare. What are some etiologies that are specific to you in pediatrics that maybe you focus on your practice or maybe you see a lot of in the pediatric world? That's a good question. So I think first and foremost, it's really important to understand that bowel dysfunction, it's not really that uncommon in pediatrics. In fact, it's right. important about one, anywhere from one to 30% of kids and adolescents. It depends what the etiology is, of course. Um, but it can be related to like functional disorders that I mentioned. It can be due to congenital or anatomic malformations or from neurologic causes as well. So there's a wide range of underlying causes and comorbidities that can kind of put you in the category of bowel dysfunction. And although um, some bowel dysfunction can be less complex, the children that typically need more complex care are those with neurogenic bowel dysfunction. And in terms of pediatric neurogenic bowel, I think that term historically has been synonymous with spina bifida, right? Yeah. Like everybody thinks mm-hmm. neurogenic bowel equals spina bifida. But it's really right. important to know, right? <laughs> Both of our pet peeves. But I think it's really important to know that there's a wide range of causes. It can be from uh, cerebral palsy. It can be from anal rectal malformation. It can be from acquired brain and spinal injuries. Even like things like transverse myelitis can cause neurogenic bowels. We actually just um, recently had a patient uh, that we saw that initially presented to infectious disease. And then their team referred to us and she actually had quite significant bowel dysfunction. So it's, it's important to understand that that many things can lead to neurogenic bowel and keep your feelers out for that as well. And are there specific diagnoses or different things that you look for, Dr. Socolo, that lead to that diagnosis of neurogenic bowel? You mentioned a lot of different etiologies. What would clinicians maybe look for in some of those tests or how do you assess for that? So since my practice is specialized in motility, I'm, I'm you know, a little skewed in that, but uh, the predominant, probably the most significant etiology, as we mentioned, the neurogenic bowel, it happens when there's a loss of normal bowel function due to some sort of a nerve problem. So as I mentioned, it can be congenital, it can be acquired due to some kind of injury involving the spine or the brain or the nerves. And the symptoms can be, you can either have constipation or fecal incontinence, but as um, we know in pediatrics, sometimes these patients have both. So in fact, chronic constipation and fecal incontinence, they can often coexist in these patients. So it's important to to understand that. And then um, patients typically have some trouble passing a bowel movement. They have some loss of feeling or sensation in the rectum, so they don't know when it's full. And they can even have unintentional leakage of their stool. They can also present with abdominal pain or nausea or even occasional vomiting or feeding difficulties, which we see. Sometimes kids can have, you know, failure to gain weight. And Mm -hmm. these issues should kind of give you a red flag to say, there's something else that I need to be looking for. Maybe there's a secondary or primary cause that's causing these secondary symptoms. So that's when we start evaluating. Also, secondary issues such as UTIs and issues with uh, bladder capacity. So some kids might be presenting with infections or urinary incontinence and not necessarily overt bowel dysfunction. So really, you know, be astute and pay attention. I always ask that during my, my intake questions, you know, do you have urinary incontinence? Um, are you having frequent UTIs? Those are important things for me to know. Because what can happen is if you, they could treat the UTI, but if they're not treating the underlying bowel dysfunction, they're going to keep struggling. 
Absolutely, yes. And actually, in some of these patients that their the bladder dysfunction is secondary to their bowel dysfunction, mm-hmm. we see an elimination of those issues once the, the bowel dysfunction is um, well-managed. Wow, that's an added benefit. So the impact of bowel dysfunction is multifaceted for kids and adults, um, but I think for pediatrics, it's even more so. I think you've mentioned a lot of the clinical aspects that we can see, and I think just dealing with incontinence and constipation together is so hard on families. Um, And I'm sure it's hard as a clinician too to try to teach families why that's happening. But there's also an impact that bowel dysfunction has as they grow up, right? Like kids normally go through these stages of being in school and activities and um, developmental milestones. How do you see bowel dysfunction really impacting those milestones as kiddos grow? This is such an important thing to pay attention to, really. And I think to answer the that question, we really need to look at each stage of a child's life mm-hmm. um, because there's different needs at each stage and at different times. So um, maybe in early childhood, bowel dysfunction may be missed or it's just simply overlooked, right? These kids are expected to be in diapers or have some constipation from time to time because they're trialing foods or their behavior, all these types of you know predisposed notions. And their parents might not see much interference in the quality of life. Most kids are in diapers and socially it's not that much of an issue. And they're small and they're light and they're easy to move and their parents might not care about, you know, changing their diapers all day long. But once these kids are ready for pre-K and kindergarten, their needs might change, right? It becomes a bigger issue for the family. And most schools and classes at this age are pushing for kids to be potty trained and out of diapers. So parents start feeling that pressure to find mm-hmm. solutions for school, um, or there may be you no know, school nurse available and uh, they have decreased support in being able to care for their child. So uh, it starts you know, coming to light about that stage. So it's important to kind of gauge these needs with the families and ask the questions to make sure that, that they're pointing you in the right direction. With what's going on with um, the pandemic and everything that's happening with healthcare, the school nurses are all but gone. So I think the push for kids is going to, we're going to see that even more for those of us that work with kids with bowel dysfunction, that um, that need to have kids independent and in control at school, right? That's right. Absolutely. So, I mean, that that actually is a great segue to my next point. In elementary school, the need for their support really intensifies, right? This is where right. they have social implications that come into play. And then children realize that they're actually different from their peers, mm-hmm. maybe. Bullying maker around that time as well, unfortunately. And then schools start requiring you to have this thing called an IEP, right? Like uh, a learning plan for them to provide the support that the child needs at school, to change their diapers at school. And then kids want to really start avoiding stooling at school at this age. That's when we start seeing it because it's like so much involvement with it at school that they start seeing withholding or doing things with their regimen that they're trying to avoid stooling at school. And then once they start transitioning to middle school and high school, I think this is when, like, you know, everybody kind of recognizes it and more of the feelers are up and we're trying to get more support mm-hmm. to patients. But obviously, even before then, we should we should start doing that as well. But there's really an added attention to things like body image. Right. Um, those start coming into the equa- equation. Kids want to be independent and their self-confidence is emerging. They want to do the things that their peers are doing, right? Like they want to go to the social activities. They want to go to pool parties. They want to have sleepovers. They want to go to the school dance. Um, Again, bullying becomes like a huge issue again, right? Like similar to elementary. And then securing care at school becomes really difficult. I actually just had a patient, recently had this patient, 
that he had everything set up. Like his parents had done all the right things. The school had gone through all the right steps. Um, they had an IEP set up for school and his toileting regimen. But when I asked him, he would not use the nurse's bathroom all day. And I was like, why are you not using the nurse's bathroom right. all there? They're waiting for you. Why are you not going? Why are you having accidents? And he said, you know, there's another child that has a special need and they have installed a lift in that bathroom. And every time I go, they have to move it. And it's a big hassle and it's an inconvenience. And I feel oh, bad that there's such a big to do every time I have to go to the bathroom. So he would skip his morning meds. Ugh. So he would avoid having accidents at school. Uh, and he liked, actually, he loved, which we see in a lot of our patients. He liked to keep his stools very hard. So uh-huh. he didn't pass any, or when he did, it'd be like a hard little ball. It didn't make much of a mess. It wasn't too stinky. And he could like take care of it and change it himself. So these are the things they're dealing with at that stage. And then as we know, as they're emerging into their young adult um, years, so once they're ready for college, there's really a huge push that I see for autonomy and a sense mm-hmm. of independence from their caretakers. Uh, they really just want to be solo. They want the regimens to be predictable, streamlined. Yep. They want things to be portable and discreet. And they don't want to be like in their dorm room mixing up normal saline and, you know, <laughs> like having a having mom come in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They don't they don't want any of that. They want it to be right. like very discreet and simple. And independence. I think you mentioned, um, you know, how important is it for you as you send kids off to college? You probably start it in middle school even, I mean, I know I have young kids in their teens and they don't want anything to do with me anymore. So I think they probably really want their parents out of the bathroom, right? Yeah. I think it's also important to gauge that in your patients. Some patients, yeah. we see that actually as young as like six, Oh, really? Um, <laughs> that they start saying, you know, I want to bathe myself. I want to do yeah. some of my own self-care. I don't want my mom wiping my bottom or taking care of me in the bathroom. So some kids are ready early on and some kids are not. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. They need more handholding and support and that's okay. But you need to gauge that at each visit with your families, with your patients to make sure you're, you're providing the things that's appropriate for them that they're ready for. When they're ready for it. You are obviously heavily into the pediatric sector. Um, is there anything specific that you notice it's different in the adult world than in the pediatric world? And what makes you so passionate, not only about treating your patients, but I hear you say time and time again, how you want to help teach other physicians how to truly make a difference for kids regarding bowel management. So I think like many things in pediatrics, the resource and knowledge for pediatric patients with neurogenic bowel is really limited. Um, There isn't that many studies about it or publications, and we don't really talk about it. Like I said before, we expect kids to be in diapers. We expect their families to care Mm -hmm. for them. So there are disparities in funding. There's disparities in recognition of the disability that impacts these children. In fact, like I mentioned before, many of these children want independence. It's missed. It's skipped. And we need to recognize that and offer opportunities for independence in children that are seeking it. And really, my passion and my desire is to expand our knowledge as a group, as a whole, as a society. And our knowledge collectively, it only grows and expands if we share and expand that with each other Mm -hmm. regarding things we've learned. And, um, you know, my passion isn't just for the children that I have the privilege to take care of. It's really, I want to help all children and I want to enable others to be able to take care of other children. And that's why we love you so much. (laughs) Um, <laughs> Thank you. That I think you mentioned um, to Dr. Sokola, what's so important is that, you know, that the kiddos are, are, are reaching out to you as clinicians and wanting to know more. They want to know what's new. And 
Um, they want to know what different treatments that may be out there that people like you have been able to find. So thank you for reaching out and sharing so much of your knowledge with us today. I am going to give you one last opportunity. If there's anything else that you think you want to share um, just on basic bowel management for pediatric patients, kind of back to the basics to close up. Yeah, I think in my opinion, as I've already, you know, touched on it, previous questions. I think it's so important for us to just keep our antennas up and our feelers up for the needs of our patients and be able to change and accommodate treatment plans based on their changing needs and their family's needs. Some kids, as I mentioned, want independence early on. Others are not quite ready yet, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Also, as I think it's important for providers who care for children with bowel dysfunction to not only apply what you learn possibly from your training, but also be willing to learn and expand on new knowledge, developments, treatments that are available to us. We can't continue to offer the same treatments and use the same strategies that are 10 or 15 years old when there's new improvements available and even uh, more coming on the horizon. We really Mm -hmm. have to keep our focus on the quality of life of our patients and be able to to accommodate and change based on that. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Socolo. Thank you, Amy. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bowel and Bladder Matters podcast, part of Coloplast Professional, where we believe clinician education related to ostomies and continence matters. For more educational resources from Coloplast, visit us at coloplast.us professional.